Hello and welcome to Sermons by the Park, the weekly sermon podcast of Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. At Union, we believe in the radical welcome of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Word of God to inspire and transform us. We're happy to share that message with you wherever you are on life's journey. Now here's this week's message. scripture reading is Matthew chapter 4 verses 18 through 23. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of these words. Our second scripture reading this morning picks up later in Matthew's gospel in the ninth chapter. Let's continue listening for the word of God for us here today. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but the sinners. This too is God's word for us here today. Thanks be to God. Will you join me now in a moment of prayer? Let us pray together. Open unto us, O God, your spirit of truth and grace. Open our ears to hear a new thing. Open our eyes to see anew. Open our hearts to be led closer to you, that we may follow in the way of Christ. And may the words of my mouth and indeed the meditations of all of our hearts here be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, throughout this month of January, we are working our way through a sermon series called Walk This Way. As I told the children, it's about discipleship, about being called to be a disciple of Christ. And so this week we hear two stories, three really, of calling to discipleship. And it put me in mind of another story of of calling that's relevant and prescient, I think, this weekend. 
Uh, in his second year as the pastor of the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was called to lead the Montgomery bus boycott. He was the face and the voice of this uh, organized protest which aimed to end the practice of racial segregation on the public transportation system there in Montgomery, Alabama. King had been chosen for this role both because he was 27 years old, good-looking, well-spoken, but also because he was from out of town. He was a new face. Um, he came to the town with a philosophical commitment to nonviolent struggle, and because he was a newcomer, he had the space to speak with a prophetic voice for justice to be done in Montgomery. But of course, being the face of this movement also made him a target for those who were holding fast to the ideology of segregation and white supremacy. The more prominent he became, the more death threats he began to receive. Again, he was only 27 years old, recently married, had small kids at home, and he was fielding as many as 30 or 40 calls a day at his home from enraged and hateful people who threatened violence against him and his family. They were trying to scare him out of Montgomery, and the calls often came in the evening when he was at home with his wife and his children. And this went on for some time, but one particular night, not unlike many other nights, King received a call after his family had gone to bed. The voice on the other end of the line was caustic, as usual, and threatened the young minister and his family with death. And for whatever reason, this time, this time, it hit him. It shook him to the core. He didn't feel like he could go to sleep, so he made a pot of coffee and poured himself a cup and sat down at his kitchen table. And he describes what he calls this kitchen table experience in his book, A Stride Toward Freedom. He says, at that moment, I was ready to give up. In this state of exhaustion, when my courage had all but gone, I decided it was time to take my problem to God. And with my head in my hands, I bowed over the kitchen table and prayed aloud, I am here taking a stand for what I believe is right. But now I am afraid. The people are looking to me for leadership, and if I stand before them without strength and courage, they too will falter. I am at the end of my powers. I have nothing left. I've come to the point where I can't face it all alone. And then he says, at that moment, I experienced the presence of the divine as I had never experienced God before. It seemed as though I could hear the quiet assurance of an inner voice saying, Stand up for justice, stand up for truth, and God will be at your side forever. And almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared, and I was ready to face anything. Three days later, the caller made good on their threat. A bomb blew up in the king's house. His family narrowly escaped the attack. When members of King's Church and the wider community heard this news, they came to the house forming a, a mob ready to call for revenge. But King, having had that kitchen table experience, he said, 
stood confidently before them and said, We must meet hate with love. Remember, if I am stopped, this movement will not stop because God is with this movement. Go home with this glorious faith and radiant assurance. And every time Martin Luther King Day rolls around, I think of this story because, of course, this holiday weekend is about celebrating Dr. King and his legacy and what he means to the nation, what he has come to symbolize as an embodiment of the ideal of the great American experiment of of freedom and equality and democracy. And yet we cannot forget We can never forget that his commitment to those ideals were based first and foremost on a commitment to the gospel of Christ. He understood his call to that role in the bus boycott as an extension of his call to ministry at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. He understood not only that as as a good career move, maybe as a way to bolster himself in the town, He had to do this because Christ had made him a disciple. Before he was a public speaker, before he was a civil rights advocate, Martin Luther King Jr. was a pastor, a child of the church, a committed follower of Christ. The same call that those disciples heard by the Sea of Galilee and on the streets of Capernaum to come and follow, he had heard in his own life years before, but he heard it in a new way that night at the kitchen table. I spoke a little bit last week about the way in which our lives are defined by these commitments that we make, the commitments we choose to honor and the ones we we break. In Christ's baptism, we were reminded that it's not our own volition that that we choose between these things, but that But that first and foremost, it is the activity of God giving us the opportunity, this grace to seek that begins the process of commitment. Even before we can ask or seek, God comes to us and says, with you, with you, I am well pleased. God forms a relationship with each and every one of us. That is the promise of baptism. But God also forms a relationship with all of creation. God promises to love the world, as John 3.16 puts it. And so we too, we are invited not only to love God, but to love the world. And that a commitment to Christ and a commitment to God is also a commitment to the world as well. You see, Christ was the embodiment of that promise that God makes to be with us. Christ expressed the way God is, relational, something that is woven into the fabric of creation. It's like gravity, almost, a law of nature that God relates to us, and we are related to God. And so I think, I think it's not surprising that we hear in Scripture that all Jesus had to say was, come and follow me, and people followed him just like that, like gravity, like a magnet. Peter and Andrew, they they dropped their nets. James and John got out of the boat with their father. You got to imagine that Zebedee was not happy in that moment. 
And Matthew, too, this tax collector. He was sitting at the tax booth one moment. Jesus says, follow me. He gets up and he leaves. He leaves that post. Now, as a tax collector, he was part of the hierarchy of the Roman imperial state that governed in that region at the time. And so he left that position and instead committed him to a new kingdom, to the coming of Christ's kingdom. There must have been something about Jesus. There must still be something about the word of God that, that we experience, that compels us in that way. I think the thing that compels us is that commitment of God to us first. God's love for the world, God's mercy for those who find themselves lost and listless. Jesus was the walking, talking embodiment of that commitment, the walking, talking embodiment of mercy. And in him, the marginalized, the ostracized, they recognized the relationship of care that God gives them, that God commits to them in particular. And so these disciples, in turn, became the most committed followers of Christ. And so we, in turn, follow them. And that's the crucial thing about the commitments we make in life. They have to be compelling to us in some way, shape, or form. That's part of what encourages us to choose to commit to things in the first place. We have to want to do something before we can commit and follow through. Because, of course, commitment takes time. Commitment takes energy. Dr. King saw in the gospel and in the American experiment the promise of equality, and he felt compelled to strive towards the fullest expression of that freedom. He saw this possibility as something he wanted not just for himself, but for his children and his children's children. And it must have been compelling to him, not just as a philosophical ideal, but rather as something he could see that was tangible in the lives of the people around him, of the, of the church members whom he served, of his family and his friends. There must have been something compelling enough to get him into the movement. And it must have sustained him for a while so that he could have shrugged off all those weeks of death threats. But eventually, eventually, just, just wanting or desiring that ideal did, was not enough. It ran out. He said, I have nothing left. I have given all I have, and there is nothing else. Even our strongest commitments can be worn down over time if they are only the product of our desire because they impose costs. They impose sacrifices upon us. King was a pastor and a community leader, but he was also a father and a husband. He had to weigh these obligations against one another. But here Jesus gives us a wise lesson. He actually gives it to the Pharisees, but we overhear it. He says, you must go and learn what this means. You must go and learn what it means that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. These are words from the prophet Hosea. They are the word of God spoken through the prophet. That God is the one who desires mercy and not sacrifice. So what does that mean? 
Well, in the context of scripture, in all likelihood, the prophet is referring to the distance between simply following the rules and rigors of ritual and religion and the character and commitment of a person to God. But I think in the context of this story of Dr. King, that God desires mercy and not sacrifice, indicates that it is not God's will that that King somehow throw himself in front of all of these evildoers and just accept the violence that they level against him. It was not God's desire for King to put his family in jeopardy. It was not God's desire that so many suffered for so long to secure their civil rights. And it is not God's desire that we today suffer in this life and live in ways that require too much and demand too much of us simply so that we can say we have sacrificed, we have suffered. No, God wants that gracious commitment, that mercy for us. That indeed that is God's will for the world. It is God's purpose. It's not just that God desires this God is committed to mercy. And of course, mercy. Mercy, here on my stole, is is described as kindness. It's described as a commitment to others, but especially a commitment to the one who stands in a deep need to be lifted up. That's where King found himself and God found him there. Carlos Rodriguez, who is the founder and CEO of a nonprofit called The Happy Givers uh, in Puerto Rico, puts it well when he says, Jesus loved everyone, but he intentionally spent time with the least loved. And Jesus himself puts it well when he says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The message of the gospel is compelling. It invites us to be the best version of ourselves. It is good news. It is a wonderful gift to know God's grace, to know the love of God and Christ. But the gospel also meets us in other ways. It meets us in our brokenness. It meets us in those times when we feel we have nothing left. It meets us where we are And that's how commitments work. We don't commit ourselves to things just out of the blue. We commit ourselves to things that are compelling to us. And so it is not just the happy times and the joy that compels us, but also our sorrows, also our recognition of injustice, also our seeing the pain and suffering of others and the need for reconciliation. You see, Jesus meets people where they are in good times and bad. For Peter and Andrew, he he said to them, I want you to be fishers of men. He literally says that I want you to draw people out of the depths and bring them into the light. For Matthew, Christ called him to not sit in that tax booth, but to come and sit at dinner. To come and sit at dinner with all these other tax collectors and these other so-called sinners, these people outside of righteousness. Of course, people wouldn't have liked Matthew that much. No one likes the tax man that much. 
But I'm sure Matthew himself probably grew to resent the people as well for their hatred of him. And yet, and yet, Christ invites him to come and to sit. In all these things, Christ meets people where they are and doesn't just present them with some beautiful, beatific vision. Christ doesn't just say everything will be all right. No, Christ says we will learn mercy and we will learn it together. When we are committed to the way of Christ, we learn that mercy and we get moved beyond simply wanting justice to not having fear to go out and work for it. And so if I had to summarize this way of Christ, this way of mercy, I would call it courageous commitment. After Christmas, I had a chance to go visit the John F. Kennedy Library, and uh, it was, uh, one of the things that I saw there was an inscription from his book, Profiles and Courage, and so I went out and I got the book and I was reading it. And in the foreword, his brother, Robert Kennedy, writes about how courage was the most important value, character trait that Kennedy looked for, that his brother looked for in people. And towards the end of Profiles and Courage, Kennedy himself wrote, A man must do what he must, in spite of personal consequences, in spite of obstacles and dangers and pressures, and that is the basis of all human morality. And on the face of it, this is a kind of brash boldness that one would expect from a rich playboy. But deep down, this is the message of the gospel that we must do what we must in spite of obstacles and dangers and pressures, not because there is something in us that is so great and powerful that we can overcome, but that there is something in God which we can lean upon, a grace that is deeper than anything we could ever ask or imagine. And so... I hear in Kennedy's encouragement the same spirit that that King heard that night at the kitchen table. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. God will be with you. And as King said, when we know this truth, when we walk in the way of Christ, we will find a glorious faith and a radiant assurance. And that, friends, is a source of courage. That is a source of commitment to live fearlessly in the way of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening. To find out more about Union Congregational Church and our life together, you can visit our website, churchbythepark.org, or find us on social media at Church by the Park. Until next time. May God's grace and peace be with you.